Are you also tired of one-size-fits-all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss, tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the Noom app for yourself with personalized lessons and expert coaching. Noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Where there's a party, there's usually cake. This colorful cake is consumed on old Christmas Day and is connected to the three visitors of a certain baby many, many years ago. It will remind you of a certain Shakespeare play about turning the world upside down. If you find its treasure, then prepare for an extra bit of fun and frivolity. So grab your fork and get ready for feasting because we're exploring the history and origins of King Cake. Welcome to another serving of Season's Eatings, the podcast which explores the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. Season's Eatings can be found wherever you download your favorite podcasts. If you haven't already, I would ask you to subscribe. That way you won't miss an episode when it's released, and all future episodes will be available without you having to search for them. If you can, please take a minute and leave me a five-star review. I would greatly appreciate it. Reviews help others find the podcast and help me know that you're enjoying what I'm doing. And if you let me know you've left a review, I'll send you a Seasons Eating sticker as a personal thank you. Seasons Eatings can also be found on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. All the links can be found in the show notes, which can be found on SeasonsEatingsPodcast.com. Finally, you can let me know how I'm doing, leave a suggestion for future episodes, or just say hello at SeasonsEatingsPodcast at gmail.com. King Cake takes its name from the Biblical Magi, also referred to as the Three Kings. In Western Christian tradition, Epiphany, known as Three Kings Day, celebrates the visit of the Magi to the Christ Child. The Eve of Epiphany is also known as Twelfth Night, which is the last day of the Christmas season, and Epiphany Day itself commences the Epiphany season. The origin of the cake tradition seems to be related to the Roman Saturnalia. These were festivals dedicated to the god Saturn, so that the Roman people in general could celebrate the longer days that began to come after the winter solstice. For these festivities, round cakes were made with figs, dates, and honey, which were shared equally among the commoners and slaves. As early as the 3rd century, a dry bean was inserted inside the sweet, 
and the lucky one who got it was named King of Kings for a short time established in advance. 17th century poet Robert Herrick explains what happens when someone finds the bean in the cake in his poem Twelfth Night or King and Queen. Now, now the mirth comes with the cake full of plums, where beans the king of the sport here. Beside we must know the pea also must prevail as queen in the court here. Begin then to choose this night as ye use, who shall for the present delight here be a king by the lot, and who shall not be twelfth day queen for the night here? Which known, let us make joysops with the cake, and let our man then be seen here. Who unurged would not drink to the base from the brink, a health to the king and queen here? The poem goes on to give a rough recipe for spiced ale flavored with apple, which is to be drunk with the cake, and clearly the cake itself is to be luxuriously full of fruit, as well as hiding the bean and the pea which will determine the lord of the feasting, also called the lord of misrule, and the queen. It must be admitted though that the cake's status as a luxury food appears less important than its role in the drinking, dressing up, rule breaking, and trick playing which characterize the last days and nights of the long Christmas feast. The idea of Twelfth Night is recorded in England as early as the 10th century, when a poetic account of the Christian calendar recounted that Christ was born in December, and at midwinter, the winter solstice, eight days before the Roman New Year, and that five days after New Year came Christ's baptism, known as the Twelfth Day in Britain. Few descriptions are given of how the feast was celebrated until the 15th century, Church records in the late Middle Ages mention the Feast of Fools on January 1st, and themes of dressing up, cross-dressing, and misrule are linked to this feast and to the Holy Innocents, which is the 28th of December, as well as the Twelfth Night. Senior clergy were expected to give way to their juniors, who would go too far. In 1495, priests in Paris apparently celebrated Mass on this day while wearing terrifying and monstrous masks and ran around their church dressed up as women whilst burning old shoes instead of incense. The only food mentioned is black pudding, which is scandalously eaten at the altar. Similar outrages are recorded from Wales, Exeter, Lincoln, Canterbury, and York. This theme of going to extremes in eating and drinking and rule-breaking characterizes Christmas in medieval sources. Advent Sunday, the fourth before Christmas, opened a period of fasting, reaching a peak on Christmas Eve, when sleep was also in short supply, due to the nighttime and early morning services which saw in Christmas Day itself. After all this, the Christmas celebrations took off, with the wealthy expected to distribute festive food and drink, Perhaps especially popular was the custom that peasant farmers were freed from their labor on their lord's lands throughout the twelve days, and that the lord should lay a feast for them. This feast echoes the world-turned-upside-down theme, and appropriate entertainments were expected. The emphasis on these was disguise, cross-dressing, trick-playing, and a lot of drinking. An extreme version was described in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight when a supernatural figure appeared in King Arthur's court 
demanded that someone cut off his head and then issued a challenge from the decapitated head. The food at Arthur's feet is not described, but King Henry V's Christmas visitors were regaled with brawn made from the belly fish of wild boar, prawns, crayfish, eels, and lampreys, an enormous range of fish including turbot and porpoise, roast meats, marzipan, and dates in spiced cream. The poorer guests at the feast were expected to sing for their suppers by putting on musical and dramatic performances, sometimes going from house to house throughout the 12 days. Courtiers were wearing elaborate masks and animal disguises, danced and rode through the court in streets with torches and lanterns. By the later Middle Ages, the bringing into the feasting hall of a whole cooked boar's head at Christmas had become a ceremonial event. The boar's head was apparently symbolic since it was replaced in some locations by a wooden version in the early modern period. The Goodman of Paris in his late 14th century book on housekeeping says that special feasts included the first course of pasties, sausages and black pudding, four courses of fish, fowl and roast meats, and a final course of custards, tart, nuts and sweetmeats. Sadly, while flans, tarts, and pastries abound in his list of recipes, there's nothing equating to a fruit cake. To find out more about the boar's head, listen to my episode about the history of this feast. I'll put a link in the show notes. But when is exactly the twelfth night? According to Christmas, a candid history by Bruce David Forbes, it depends on how the first day of Christmas is counted. If day one is counted as Christmas Day, Then the Twelfth Night is celebrated on the evening of January 5th, the Eve of Epiphany. On the other hand, if Day 1 is counted the day after Christmas, then the Twelfth Night is celebrated on January 6th, the evening of the Epiphany itself. We'll find out what happens in America for the Twelfth Night cake after the break. I'm Chris. I'm Brian. I'm John. Together, we host the Yuletide TV Podcast, where we're on the quest to find the best Christmas TV episodes ever made. On our podcast, we'll recap the episode, share a little bit of our own holiday memories, and go down a few non-Christmas tangents. And at the end, we'll let you know if what we watched is a Christmas classic, a lump of coal, or something in between. Best of all, you can watch along with us because we only cover episodes that are readily available on major streaming services. We like our eggnog spikes, so get ready for some hot takes served with a healthy dose of Christmas cheer. Tune in for our Season 2 lineup reveal on November 2nd, and then look for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from November 23rd, which is legally Thanksgiving, until Christmas Day. Our podcast may not be for everyone, But no matter what, we're glad you're alive. What do you like about Christmas? The music, the movies, the traditions, the food, the history, all of the above? Then the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast is for you. Tune in every month to hear a marginally successful stand-up comedian dig into topics like Charlie Brown Christmas, Bing Crosby, Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, Jingle Bells, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, The Christmas Truce of World War I, Die Hard, Bethlehem, Gift of the Magi, Haunted Mansion Hollywood, Andy Williams, Christmas Lights, Nativity Scenes, Nat King Cole, Before Christmas, Toys R Us, Silent Night, Hell the Grinch, Old Christmas, Miracle on Christmas Tree, Twelve Days of Christmas, Old Christmas Tree, Actually, it's going to take way too long to cover all the stuff we've talked about. Just join us at Can't Wait for Christmas Pod on the 25th of every month for the Can't Wait for Christmas Podcast, where our motto is... 
keep laughing all the way. Eventually, Spanish and French settlers brought the cake to America. It often includes a figurine, and it is believed that the individual who discovers it will have good fortune. In some regions, the king cake is consumed throughout Epiphany Tide until the first day of Lent, Ash Wednesday. So what happens at a Twelfth Night party? French settlers brought the custom of the king cake to Louisiana in the 18th century. The Twelfth Night Grand Balls and events launch the carnival season and always include the presentation of the Twelfth Night Cake or King's Cake. And what happens at a Twelfth Night party? According to the 1923 Denison's Christmas book, there should be a king and queen chosen by cutting a cake. The Twelfth Night Cake has a bean and a pea baked into it. The man who finds the bean in his slice of cake becomes the king for the night, while the lady who finds the pea in her slice of cake becomes queen for the night. The new king and queen sit on a throne and paper crowns, scepter, and if all possible, full regalia are given them. The party continues with games such as charades, as well as eating, dancing, and singing carols. For large Twelfth Night celebrations, a costume party is suggested. There are other items mentioning Twelfth Night located in the National Museum of American History Library. One of these is an 1865 cookbook entitled The Cook's Own Book, an American Family Cookbook. A recipe for 12 cake is found on page 40, and considering it calls for 18 eggs, it appears to be a rather large cake. Another book located at the NMAH Library is Cakes and Characters, an English Christmas tradition written by Bridget Ann Hennish. It traces the history of the Twelfth Night and different ways the holiday has been celebrated. The appendix begins on page 203 and focuses on Twelfth Night cakes and recipes, noting that a cake for a Twelfth Night party was not necessarily called a Twelfth Night cake. Instead, it might have had a name such as a bride's cake or a great cake, among others. But historians say that sometime in the late 19th century, the Twelfth Night Revelers, a New Orleans social group that hosted the first Mardi Gras ball of the season, took up the custom of hiding a bean, later replaced by a pecan or a jeweled ring, inside the cake. According to the Times-Picayune Creole cookbook, the lucky finder of the treasure would then be crowned king or queen of the ball. The New Orleans tradition, borrowing heavily from European influences, is believed to have begun in the 1870s. As part of this celebration, it is now traditional to bake a cake in honor of the three kings. King cakes are oval-shaped to symbolize the unity of faiths. Each cake is decorated in the traditional Mardi Gras colors, purple representing justice, green representing faith, and gold representing power. A small baby, symbolizing the baby Jesus, is traditionally hidden inside each king cake. In New Orleans, king cake parties are held throughout the Mardi Gras season. In offices, classrooms, and homes throughout the city, king cakes are sliced and enjoyed by all. And like the biblical story, the search for the baby adds excitement as each person waits to see in which slice of the cake the baby will be discovered. While custom holds that the person who finds the baby will be rewarded with good luck, that person is also traditionally responsible for bringing the king cake to the next party or gathering. 
So what type of cake exactly is a king cake? The main body of the cake is actually made from a brioche dough. Brioche is considered a vanazerie because it's made from the same basic way as bread, but has the richer aspect of pastry because of the extra addition of eggs, butter, water, milk, cream, and sometimes brandy, and occasionally sugar. It's usually called an enriched dough because of all the extra ingredients. Basic bread dough only needs five. Flour, water, salt, some type of fat, and yeast. The first recorded use of the word brioche in French dates from 1404. It is attested in 1611 in Cotgrave's A Dictionnaire of the French and English Tongues, where it's described as a roll or a bun of spiced bread, and its origin giving as Norman. Although there's been much debate about the etymology of the word, and thus the recipe's origins, it's now widely accepted that it's derived from the old French verb brier, a Norman dialectical form of broyer, to work the dough with a broy, that's a sort of wooden roller for kneading. The suffix O-C-H-E or osh is a generic to verbal suffix. Pan brier is a Norman bread whose dense dough was formerly worked with this instrument. In France, it developed as a sort of bread improved since antiquity by generations of bakers, then pastry makers, with some butter and some eggs and some sugar coming later. It developed from the blessed bread of the church, which gradually become of better quality, more and more costly, less and less bread, until becoming savory brioche. In the 17th century, pâté à tarte brioche, or a pan à brioche pauvre, meaning poor, using only three eggs and 250 grams of butter for one kilo of flour, was introduced. The terms pain béni or brioche were sometimes used together or virtually interchangeably. So, for example, in another 17th century recipe entitled pain béni et brioche, it begins with a lighter, cheaper version of blessed bread, calling for a pound of fresh butter and soft cheese, but no eggs, for a pail of flour. and goes on to describe a more delicate that we call cousin, which uses three pounds of butter, two kinds of cheese, and a royal pint of eggs for the same amount of flour, as well as some good milk if the dough is too firm. However, sourdough and brewer's yeast preparations would remain common well into the next century, with blessed bread more and more often replaced by brioche in the 18th century, where those from Guizot and Gournay great butter markets were the highly regarded. For the wealthy, from the time of Louis XIV onwards, butter, in widespread use at least in the northern half of France, was the secret in making brioche. In Guizot, on market days, they produce up to 200 or 300 kilos of brioche. Using this brioche base, the traditional king cake is made from twisted strands of cinnamon dough, covered by poured sugar and sprinkled with purple, green, and gold-colored sugar. Today, many additional varieties of king cake are also available by adding cream cheese or other fillings to the traditional king cake. Poppy Tooker, a preeminent New Orleans food expert and host of Louisiana Eats on NPR, tells that the big king cake revolution came along in the 1940s, thanks to a baker named Donald Entringer and a chance encounter. His bakery, Mackenzie's, was one of the biggest and most famous commercial bakeries in the 20th century New Orleans. 
By 1950, king cake had become such a fixture of the Mardi Gras season, served over and over between King Day and Fat Tuesday, that people increasingly turned to commercial bakeries like Mackenzie's to source their cakes. One day, Entringer was approached by a traveling salesman who had with him little porcelain dolls from France, about the size that would fit in a dollhouse. He had a big overrun on them, so he said to Entringer, how about using these in the king cake? That sort of entranced them, and he began baking the porcelain dolls into the cake. Entringer got permission from the health department to bake dolls into the cake, the Time Picayune reports. After a while, Tooker says, Entringer ran out of porcelain dolls. So he went down to the French Quarter. We found the little plastic king cake baby we know today from an importer. And so little plastic babies became the absolute positive rule. The babies are now indeed ubiquitous and come in a rainbow of colors, from somewhat realistic pink and brown to green, purple, and gold. But recently, bakeries have stopped baking the baby into the cake, leaving it in the center of the oval for revelers to insert discreetly before serving. Apparently, the idea of baking a piece of plastic in food doesn't go over as well anymore. Tooker sees this as a small tragedy. We've become such a litigious society that nobody will put the baby inside the king cake anymore. It's really kind of sad. Yet, in an intriguing reversal, a New Orleans woman has revived the tradition of using a porcelain baby. Alberta Lewis sells porcelain figurines in Hadel's Bakery and comes up with a new design every year. And we're told by a friend in Mexico City where Rosca de Reyes are now jammed with plastic babies. That porcelain is making a comeback there too. In France, Gerat de Roi translates literally as Cake of Kings and is a flaky pastry cake made from puff pastry and typically filled with a frangipan almond cream. A decorative pattern is scored on the top of it before baking and sometimes the finished cake is topped with a paper crown. And traditionally, there's a bean hidden inside. The Bolo Rey, a Portuguese version of the king cake, is also ring-shaped and filled with candy fruit and sometimes nuts. And Bulgaria's Benitsa is generally served on New Year's Eve, and also on other special occasions like weddings or festivals. It consists of sheets of phyllo dough wrapped around soft cheese and contains charms as well as written fortunes. The common denominator between all of these cakes is that they have a small trinket or figurine hidden inside. And whoever finds the trinket in their slice of cake gets to be king for a day, and is also said to have good luck. Thank you for listening to this serving of Season's Eatings. Season's Eatings is available on Apple Podcasts, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, Deezer, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Please, if you leave a review about the show so we can help spread the Christmas cheer, and if you let me know you've left a review, I'll send you a Season's Eatings sticker as a personal thank you. Also, I'd love to hear from you, so send me an email at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com to let me know how you like the show. And I know we all get busy. So even sharing this podcast with someone you know who loves Christmas would be a great help. And if you're feeling extra generous this season, you can buy me an eggnog. Head on over to seasonseatingpodcast.com and click on the little cup in the corner. Each small donation helps with the daily running of the podcast and is greatly appreciated. 
Thank you for listening and tune in again for another serving of Seasons Eatings. Seasons Eatings is also part of the Christmas Podcast Network. Head on over to christmaspodcast.com to find anything and everything Christmas. Whatever you want to hear about the holiday, there's probably a podcast out there talking about it. So head on over to christmaspodcast.com and find your next new favorite. All music for Seasons Eatings is used under the Creative Commons license.